Hey, and welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Munte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization, everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, we'll talk with experts from across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palio.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. This podcast spends a lot of time bashing Descartes' cogito, the cogito ergo sum, the idea that rationality is what makes us who we are. Miriam Schoenfield helped us understand how our most important beliefs about the world have the most arbitrary foundation. We inherit them. Adrian Barden explained in frightening detail how we lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. James Mumford showed how our political allegiances have only the most limited internal coherence. And to make matters even worse, David Robson showed us how it's the very cleverest amongst us who make some of the most hideous epistemic mistakes. So we've been painting a picture of humans as dangerously irrational, but highly intelligent agents, using all our smarts not to understand the world, but to justify our views of it. The result? a deeply fractured political ecosystem, and accelerating polarization. Today, we're here to talk with Dr. Kevin Dorst, a research fellow at Oxford University and assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh, working on polarization and irrationality, who I think is going to argue that actually we are rational creatures. We should see ourselves as rational creatures, and failing to do so is what is pulling our societies apart. Kevin, it's a great pleasure to have you on the Palia podcast. Great to be here. Kevin, I wonder whether we might start by a story. Can you tell us about you and Becca? Yes, definitely. So polarization sort of is on everyone's minds, but it sort of goes to my heart in, in one particular way. So I, I grew up in rural Missouri and I mean, we in a small town in Missouri. And even though it was sort of a, a little bit of a blue dot in a very red state, it was not very blue. And so I had, you know, I was in a liberal family, but we weren't terribly liberal. And certainly many of my friends were quite conservative. One of my good friends, Becca, was a good friend growing up in high school. And, uh, you know, when we went off to college, I was going off to a liberal university in uh, St. Louis, and she was going off to a conservative community college in rural Missouri. I mean, at least you can guess that I was going to become more liberal and she was going to become more conservative. And so when we came back, we would see eye to eye less and so on. And that's more or less what happened. I mean, we, we stayed in touch for a couple of years, but it, you know, it started to get more and more strained. We saw each other more and more differently or saw, saw politics in particular more and more differently. I feel like that's a pretty standard story these days. I think there are sort of three things that stand out to me in the story. And two of them are pretty standard. So one is that like the polarization that results is pretty profound. By now, I mean, I, after the liberal university, I went to a liberal graduate school. I'm now quite, quite liberal. And she's no doubt much more conservative than I. So there's a profound polarization. It's also a persistent polarization because talking to her again, the fact that she disagrees with me doesn't make me doubt my beliefs. And likewise for her. 
But I think the most fascinating thing for me is that it's also predictable, that sort of we could see it coming. And so that constellation of, of facts about polarization that is both profound and really far apart, it's persistent, we don't change our opinions when we find out that we disagree. And it's predictable, we can see all this coming, is a you know, sort of striking picture of polarization and uh, one that I well, want to understand more. And you use this story of Kevin and Becca as a sort of metaphor for what you think has happened broadly across the U.S. in the last decades. I say U.S., but also we've seen similar polarization stories across Western Europe too, no? Well, we, let's, let's get to Europe later. Let's talk about the U.S. now, which I feel like I have a better grip on. And yeah, I think that the, there's a fairly standard story now for three senses in which um, the U.S. has become increasingly polarized over the last few decades. The first is sometimes called partisan sorting. It's this idea that, well, even if people's individual views on individual issues don't become more extreme, their views tend to become more politically consistent in the sense that liberals flock to the De Democratic Party and conservatives flock to the Republican Party. So, you know, 50 years ago, if you knew someone's opinion about gun rights, you couldn't predict their opinion about abortion, but now you can. And that's partisan sorting. So that's one sense in which we polarize. So this idea of partisan sorting, ideological sorting, it's the sense that Democrats have become more universally democratic, that they're, the opinions have, have, have coalesced much more closely, and that it's very rare, for example, to have a pro-life person who is also, who's also left-wing economically. Those things have now split, and people who are democratic sort of hold on to those democratic principles across the entire swathe of, sort of, of policies, and ditto on the Republican side. Is that right? I think that's right, although I might qualified a little bit by saying, well, it's not entirely clear that there's some unifying, there's necessarily some unifying philosophy that makes these policies all count as democratic. What's definitely true is that there's much more correlated beliefs amongst Democrats. So, you know, two Democrats are more likely to agree on some random issue that you choose nowadays than they were 50 years ago. Now, it's a hard question whether there's some like overarching left-right divide that really unifies those cluster positions, and maybe there is, but at least what's definitely true is that there's agreement, whether or not it's sort of agreement. So jumping in quickly here, so only because you know, plugging a, a wonderful conversation I had with James Mumford on this podcast, who wrote a book called Vexed, actually going into all the intellectual inconsistencies that exist within a single political party. For example, the fact that, that you can be both pro-life and pro-gun in the Republican Party, for example. So, so actually what we see is that there, isn't, there really isn't a core of ideological consistency within either of these parties. So there's actually, these are, this is an emotional move in other words, but that's sort of ideological sorting. Yes. So that was the first sense in which the U.S. has become increasingly polarized. The a second one is probably the sort of a more common one you think of when you hear polarization is sometimes called attitude polarization. It's just the idea that takes some particular question like, is Trump a good president um, or, or is a Republican president a good thing for the country or something like that. Uh, people's opinions have been more gotten full pulled further apart than that. So for example, I think, what are some of these numbers? So if you look at presidential approval ratings over time, you know, there's always been a partisan split. Democrats always like democratic presidents and Republicans always like Republican presidents and not vice versa. But that split is going, getting wider and wider. So I think in um, the Nixon era, it was like 75% of Republicans approved and 34% of Democrats did, averaging across his, his tenure. In Trump, I think it's closer to 90% of 
Republicans approve and 5% of Democrats do across Trump's tenure and so on. And that's, I mean, that's a consistent wow. and that's people have been more extreme. And that, and that you call attitude polarization. So yeah. that the view of the policies of the other party has hardened negatively. Well, so there's, there's a debate over whether attitude polarization has happened. And part of that debate reduces to the question of like, what issues do we count? What opinions do we count? So I think it's actually much harder to, if you just focus on policies, if you say like uh, universal basic income, say, take that as your policy, and you just poll whether people approve of that or not. It's not so clear that there's, or at least across many issues, it's not so clear that there's been a hardening of opinions in the abstract, approving or disapproving between Democrats and Republicans. But if you ask someone a different question, which is Democrats are proposing a universal basic income or something like that, do you approve of this policy or not? Then there's a massive split in across parties. So sort of, if we look at policies per se, it's not so clear that there's been polarization, but if we look at attitudes more broadly, including things like whether democratically proposed policies are good ones, whether Republican presidents are wise or whatever, those are opinions that have hardened and gotten more extreme. I feel like jumping in again with apologies. If, if on ideological sorting, we're clear that, in fact, the, there is little in intellectual consistency mm. in these different political tribes. But nevertheless, we are all more tribey or tribal inside them. And two, on attitude polarization, what you're suggesting here is, is again, that it's not so much the policies as the naming, the fact that they are Democrat or Republican, which makes us dislike them, not actually the policies themselves. Is that right? I think that's broadly right, though I think the implication that you're going for is one I would resist. So there's, there's a natural implication from those two observations. Say, well, okay, so it's just, you know, it's irrational or insensible or, or, or silly to, or emotional or whatever to just, you know, if we don't actually care more about the policies, why is whether a party proposes them or not relevant for them? And I think, I mean, there's a lot more to be said, but at least a first thing that is worth being clear on is that there's nothing necessarily inconsistent or irrational in not approving of policy X, but then learning that when Democrats propose policy X, you do approve it. Because basically, you know, these claims, like we should implement a universal basic income, that's a different claim than the claim that Democrats are going to implement universal basic income. So if you, let's suppose rationally, really trust Democrats, then you might think, oh, that's, if Democrats are proposing it, that's a good idea. If you really distrust Democrats, and of course, you're going to have the exact opposite. Understood. You know, maybe. I keep interrupting you, Kevin. What's that last point about polarization in America today? Great. So the, the last and probably most striking form of polarization is sometimes called affective polarization, or I, I prefer to call it demonization. It's just the, the tendency to dislike people from the other party and the other party in general. So the numbers here are particularly striking. If you uh, ask people what their opinion is of the other party, say Republicans, what their opinion is of the Democratic Party, from 1994 to I think 2016, the percentage that had a, quote, very unfavorable, end quote, opinion of the Democratic Party jumped from 21% to 58%, which I think something like 90% had an overall unfavorable opinion. And the numbers for Democrats' attitudes towards Republicans are very similar. So the perhaps most striking and worrying form of polarization is this fact that we just tend to hate each other now, that people on different parties tend to disapprove of, the other, of those on the other side. 
we, we spoke to Bob Talese about this and went into some of the reasons for it. But can you explain how it works? You're interested in all these various different forms of bias in the way that we understand each other, confirmation bias, selective exposure, etc. What are the various mechanisms that we use to help us polarize and to keep us polarized? Right. So there are, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of different mechanisms that go on to, to lead people to sort of predictably polarize, to predictably strengthen their beliefs on and their opinions and their feelings on these political discussions, these political debates. The, I think it's helpful to focus on a couple of different tendencies, which have still a fairly broad tent. So the first one's often called confirmation bias. People have probably heard of that, but it's helpfully distinguished into two subcategories or some subtypes. Broadly, confirmation bias is the tendency to look for and interpret evidence in a way to confirm your prior beliefs. The, the one type of that is looking for evidence. It's called selective exposure. This idea that which sort of evidence we look for is highly contingent on what, what we believe. So, I mean, this is pretty commonsensical. If you're a liberal, you probably check the New York Times if you're more often than you check Fox. If you're a Republican, you probably check Fox more often than the New York Times or you know, Wall Street Journal, pick your, pick your poison. So selective exposure is just the fact that our prior beliefs condition what sort of new information we get and what sort of sources we look at. And so if we tend to have some prior beliefs and look at sources that are favorable to those prior beliefs, that will tend to harden those beliefs. The second subtype of confirmation bias is once you get the evidence. So it's sometimes called bias assimilation of evidence. And this is the fact that how we interpret evidence is contingent on what our, our prior beliefs are. And in particular, you can give you know, Democrats and Republicans, or, or more generally, people who disagree on some issue, the exact same evidence, and they'll interpret it in different ways. At least, at least sometimes they'll interpret it in different ways. So the classic study from the uh, late 70s, I think, is, is, took these two groups who disagreed about whether capital punishment uh, was, I'm not sure the exact wording, but we should implement capital or have, allow capital punishment. And what they did was, you know, one group prior thought we should, one group prior thought we shouldn't. And then they gave them two studies. Uh, one study that you know, looked at the effect of capital punishment on, you know, crime rates and so on, and saw it, it had a deterrent effect, and one that looked at it and said it didn't. So they get, everyone in these studies, get the, in every subject, gets these two studies to look at, and they get some time to evaluate them. And what happens is those who um, thought capital punishment is a good policy, really scrutinized the study which suggested that it wasn't and found flaws in all sorts of things. And so they interpreted the evidence on the whole to say, well, yeah, I saw there was one study in favor of one study against, but on the whole, the study supported the idea that capital punishment is effective. And the people who thought prior that capital punishment wasn't effective had the exact opposite reaction. And so that's an example of bias simulation. They get the same evidence and they have opposite reactions to it. Right. All of these are forms of what's been called motivated reasoning. And just to put it back in the context, the broader context of this talk, motivated reasoning is broadly how we all assume we think. We have this narrative, certainly on the Palia podcast, of deeply irrational humans fixing the data to make it suit our views of the world. Can I ask you to tell me why you think that's wrong? Because I think your sense here is that actually there is rationalism in the in some of that motivated reasoning could you help me understand what is rational about polarization here that's right so i think it's helpful to 
distinguish two different issues. There's the empirical issue of what people do when presented with new evidence, when given the choice, choice of which newspaper to look at and what have you. And there's the normative question of whether they should be doing that or whether that's irrational. And the empirical work, I mean, replication crisis notwithstanding, the empirical work on this stuff is pretty solid, that there's, there's a tendency people have to look for information that tends to confirm their beliefs, to interpret information in a way that tends to confirm it, to you know, have these, this motivated reasoning effect on their beliefs. Then there's this normative question of, is that irrational? So the basic argument I want to make is that it's not nearly so clear as you might think that um, it's rational. Can we, can we, can I just make absolutely clear that we know what we're saying? I, 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 replicability crisis, which is the issue of whether all, all these experiments can actually be replicated. And I know there is a crisis in academia around some issues there, but I'm going to ignore that and just go with the anecdotal. I and everyone I know absolutely does selectively expose. I do read liberal newspapers because that's what I like. And I do scrutinize um, evidence which I disagree with much, much harder than evidence than I, that I do agree with. That's a common trait, right? What you're telling me is that actually, that may actually be rational. That may be exactly. a reasonable thing to do. Excellent. So yeah, I, I'll, I'm going to break the argument into two parts. One is just sort of a, a general argument that we should think there's got to be some rational explanation of these mechanisms. So then I'll go, we can, we can talk in more detail about how, for example, that particular tendency could be, could be rational. So the general argument is pretty straightforward. It's got two premises or two steps. The first is just sort of these psychological tendencies we have to selectively expose ourselves to different information, to interpret evidence in a biased, or sorry, biased simulation of evidence and so on. The psychological evidence is just clear that those are bipartisan. So both Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives have the same tendencies to fall fall for or use at least motivated reasoning, selective exposure, confirmation bias, and so on. And that's been shown in all sorts of studies that were made these things so well known. We're as bad as each other. So the, the basic idea of the first point is that, well, look, these mechanisms are what drive polarization. We know that as well from empirical stories about what drive polarization. Whether you're rational or not depends on the mechanisms you use to form your beliefs. And so if Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives are using the same mechanisms to form their beliefs. And either they're both doing so rationally or they're both doing so irrationally. So we have a sort of a parody of rationality claim. Yeah, that's, that's claim one. And that's just well supported by the psychological data and anecdotally as well. The second claim is that, well, you can't think that your own firmly held political beliefs are irrational. I mean, just try. So like take your opinion about Trump, whatever that is. I mean, I think Trump's a, not a good president. And I'm pretty confident of that. Here's something I don't think. I don't think Trump's a bad president, but I'm irrational to believe that. Or Trump's a bad president, but I shouldn't believe that. That's an incoherent belief to have. Insofar as I think my belief is not rationally based, I have to give up that. Belief. I can't maintain confidence in something and think I shouldn't have confidence in it. So sort of a straightforward coherence constraint says we can't think that our own firmly held beliefs are irrational. That's step two. So if you can't think your own firmly held beliefs are irrational, and you should think, well, my beliefs are irrational, sort of, that, that claim is true if and only if the other side's beliefs are rational, then you should infer, well, both sides are rational. So that's the basic argument for why, okay, well, I, I know that I have these sort of 
motivated reasoning, selective exposure, and so on tendencies. I, I admit that. Maybe I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm you know, certainly not perfectly rational. But I don't think that my opinion about Trump is just caused by pure irrationality. I've got plenty of good evidence for that. That's what you should think. And because you should think that, you should think there's got to be some rational explanation for what's going on here, for how I got to have these firm political beliefs and therefore how those who disagree with me got to have theirs. So that's gotcha. the basic so, argument that we should see. So if we see ourselves, if we, if, if we refuse to see our own political opinions as irrational, we cannot demonize the other side and, and see their political opinions as irrational. That's the argument. Of course, in real life, that's precisely what we do. Got it. Yeah, so that's, that's where I come in. And so I think that the history here is actually somewhat interesting because I, I didn't start, well, it took me a while to get to polarization as a topic. So in my, when I was doing my PhD, I was working on this sort of arcane subfield of epistemology broadly study of knowledge, the subfield is called formal epistemology. And so it's basically building rational model or models, mathematical models of rational belief. So we're trying to make sort of tools within you about how re rational people reason. And the, the particular thing I was working on was what I'll call ambiguous evidence. So ambiguous evidence is basically evidence that's hard to know how to react to, evidence that sort of is unclear what to make of. So, I mean, it's evidence that rational people should be unsure whether they're responding rationally to. It's evidence that you should have some self-doubt about. Anyway, ambiguous evidence is everywhere in politics. And the, the basic, the key result that my dissertation was about was the sort of two-pronged thing. The first is that there's a sense in which ambiguous evidence always leads to predictable shifts in opinions, at least on some claims. When you get ambiguous evidence, you can predict that your, your opinion is going to move around a certain direction. But the second thing is that, nevertheless, ambiguous evidence is often valuable in the sense that you expect it to help you get to the truth. So although there are these predictable shifts, you don't expect them to be sort of directing you away from the truth. You're expecting them to, to help you get to the truth. So that was just a purely theoretical result. I'm going to stop you there because I, need, I, I want to I dig in a little bit here. The key piece here is the idea of ambiguous evidence. And here, therefore, is the key back into the proposed rationality of confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, etc. Can you give? Can we? Can we dig a little bit deeper into this, these two ideas that you flagged? The first is that ambiguous evidence moves you around, and secondly, you aim for it to get you to the truth. Give me an example. Great. Yeah. So I'll, here's an example that I, I made to run an experiment and and, and test this predictable polarization. So it's called a word completion task. And what you do is you get a string of letters and some blanks. And the question is, is there an English word that completes that string, right? So I might give you a string that reads T R blank P blank R. And then the question is, can you fill that in, in a way that makes a word T R blank P blank R? The answer is no, there's no way that traper, traper, no, none of those work. So that's not an uncompletable string. I could give you a different string that says FR blank blank L. Is that completable? Well, frill, frail, those are two ways to complete FR blank blank L. So FR blank blank L, that's a completable string. TR blank P blank R, that's not a completable string. And here's the, the key thing about these word completion tasks is they, they give you evidence that is asymmetrically ambiguous in the sense that 
if I give you a completable string, it's relatively unambiguous evidence. All you have to do is find a word, frill, and then you know it's completable. But if I give you an uncompletable string, then it's ambiguous evidence. It's hard to know what to make of. You won't find the word. You'll stare at tr blank p blank r for five, 10 seconds, and you, nothing will come into your head, but you'll be unsure whether it's just, you just missed it. You know, you'll, you'll wonder whether in a second, maybe you'll see some, some answer to fill it in. And so what that means is that sort of when I give you word completion task, sort of you might get strong evidence, strong unambiguous evidence, which says it's completable, frill. Or you might get weak evidence, which says it's not. You sort of doesn't look it's like exactly. And so what that means is that on average, your confidence is gonna go up that the word is completable. So it might go way up, it might go a little bit down, that averages to a little bit up. So in particular, if you give people a bunch of these things um, and look at their average confidence across time, on average, they're gonna get more confident that the strings they see are completable. So that's the basic way ambiguous evidence can lead to shifts in beliefs. Now you can, you can do that. Give me, bring me into the real world. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an argument about gays in the military, what, whatever. Yeah, excellent. So the basic idea then with a word completion task is that you're doing a sort of cognitive search. You're looking for you know, some particular item to figure out what to think with this ambiguous information you got, this letter string. And that's something that we do all the time. So if I give you, you know, to take that capital punishment study, right? I give you these two studies, right? One which has the headline which seems to support the idea that capital punishment has a deterrent effect. One which has a headline which suggests the opposite. What are you gonna do with those studies? Well, you're gonna do a cognitive search. You're gonna look at those studies and try to see what to make of them. You try to see if there's like, if the reasoning is good or if there's a flaw, see if they made some mistaken move and so on. And the idea is what you're doing there is very similar to what you're doing in a word completion task. If you find a flaw with a study, you know what to think, you know it's a bad study. But if you look for a flaw and fail to find one, well, then you don't know what to make of it and you don't get much strong evidence against it. So the idea then is that, well, look, suppose you believe capital punishment has a deterrent effect, right? And then you get these two studies and you've got a limited time and resources to think about them. What are you gonna do? You're gonna try to find, you're, you're gonna look for a flaw where you think you're gonna find one, right? That's the good way to get clear, unambiguous evidence. Where do you think you're gonna find one? You think you're gonna find one in the study that said it doesn't have a deterrent effect. You, you think you're gonna find one that in the study that was surprising, right? And of course, vice versa, if you thought capital punishment didn't have a deterrent effect, you're gonna look for a flaw in the study that you think was surprising. That suggested it did have a deterrent effect. And that's, that's rational if, that's, if you're doing something like a word completion, like the word completion task. You're trying to find unambiguous, strong evidence. And in so doing, you just happen to be doing it in a way which leads you to predict predictably strengthen your beliefs because of the asymmetry and the sort of ambiguity you're going to get. Gotcha, that's beautiful. And one could look at it positively, not just negatively. So faced with two pieces of evidence which seem to contradict each other, you'd bring to bear upon the question all the other evidence that you have, which would be, amongst other things here, your pre-held belief that capital punishment is or is not a good thing. So you're exactly. adding your experience of evidence, even if it's personal experience rather than science or data, to the mix and coming up with a, with a view there. That's and trying the, to use that to, to remove the ambiguity, remove the uncertainty in the evidence to figure out what to make of it exactly. And that's rational. That's reasonable. So, Kevin, on the back of this explanation of ambiguous evidence, can you explain to me why 
motivated reasoning actually is rational. Great. Yes. So the basic idea, so with this, say, motivated reasoning that's tied to your prior beliefs, so it's by assimilation of evidence or selective exposure, say, the simple idea is that it makes sense to try to avoid ambiguous evidence, try to find unambiguous, clear evidence. With the bias assimilation, we sort of saw how that's going to work. It's, well, if you get this you know, conflicting piece of evidence, you're going to look for flaws in the pieces of evidence that tell against your prior belief. And that makes sense to do because it's where you expect to find the flaw, how you expect to find unambiguous evidence. We can see this also in the sort of selective exposure. You're looking for new evidence. Suppose you're deciding whether to tune into Fox or MSNBC or CNN or whatever, some, some political news is just broken and you want to get the latest on it. And for a, you're a liberal, you think, well, if I tune into Fox, they're going to be giving me all these reasons to think that, you know, say, the Republican move after RBG's death is a, a reasonable one and so on. And I think that's, you know, I think that's going to be misleading, but I'm going to have trouble figuring out exactly what to make of it. It's going to be ambiguous. Whereas if you go to CNN, you know what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you what you already think that Republicans are doing some, you know, shady business that's hypocritical and so on. Of course, that's if you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, vice versa. And so the, the idea is trying to avoid ambiguous evidence, trying to get a clear sense of what's going on drives people to look for sources that will, they predict will confirm their prior beliefs. And that's how you can get at least some forms of, of rational selective exposure and so confirmation bias more generally. So it's actually a two-step process. On the one hand, when weighing up evidence on either side, we select to ensure that we can come to hard evidence and we select therefore in favor of our prior experience but we also do it preemptively and so far as when we know that there's going to be ambiguous evidence around an event that we're looking at like for example the response to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg's death we go to the place that we will find evidence which we will find conclusive exactly okay I think that I've understood the move here this argument that we are in fact rational creatures and that the way that we think about politics is also rational is a profoundly political realization. Is that right, Kevin? Yes, that's right. I think the basic idea here is that when we attribute people's beliefs to irrationality, that can contribute to one of the forms of polarization, affective polarization in particular. Uh, so let me, let me talk through that. So th there's this well-known, fantastic work from the um, 70s by these psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, that was basically scrutinizing you know, the question of how rational people are. They started this research program that became known as the Heuristics and Biases Research Program. And the basic idea was that you might have thought people are, are generally rational, but when you look under the hood, what you see is that they use a sort of grab bag of heuristics that give simple, easy answers in a variety of situations, but that lead to systematic biases and errors and systematic irrationalities. So this was a hugely influential research program in the field that became known as judgment decision-making in psychology and then grew into behavioral economics in the economics field. And so the basic insight that I totally agree with is that there are these simple assumptions that people were making in sort of economics and other fields about how rational people reason and turns out people don't conform to those simple assumptions so these simple models of rationality people don't conform to those and so they, they use all these things like confirmation bias and so on we're supposed to demonstrate that the thing that i question is whether those 
things are necessarily irrational, whether the uh, failures to map onto those rational models, those simple rational models indicate irrationality or indicate something more complex going on. So that's the sort of thing that the ambiguous evidence story I was giving is about. It's about using a more sophisticated rational model to see how these things that people do actually needn't be irrational. The reason why I think that's important is that this sort of narrative of irrationality really got into the popular culture. So I mean, do things like Google Ngram, the track that you word usage of terms like irrationality and biases, and they just explode across the mid 20th century. Uh, I think increased by like 20 times or 18 times, I believe is the occurrence of bias. So that sort of gets into the popular culture. Kahneman writes this famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which sells millions of copies and you know, he wins the Nobel Prize, Richard Thaler wins a Nobel Prize in economics and so on. We get this narrative that people are rational and overconfident and so on in their beliefs. And the problem, if you have that narrative and you take it to politics, is that, well, you try to explain polarization by appeal to those biases. You say, well, what drives polarization that people have is irrational reasoning biases. The trouble is, right, you never, for the reasons that we talked about earlier, you don't apply that to yourself. You don't think your own beliefs were formed systematically irrational, irrationally. You can't, otherwise you wouldn't have those beliefs. And so when we attribute polarization to irrationality, we attribute it to the other side's irrationality. We think the other side were the biased ones, the ones who are using confirmation bias and all the rest to come to think so differently than us. And the problem is it's a short step from thinking they're irrational and biased to thinking that they're dumb and immoral. Because once you think someone, you know, if you think someone has beliefs that they shouldn't have given their evidence and they're using those beliefs to pursue a political agenda, then that's, you know, they're doing something wrong, right? Whereas if you think, they're sort of mistaken, they're misled, they're rational but wrong, then you, know, you should resist them, you should counteract their political moves and so on and, and think they're wrong. But you shouldn't think they're dumb or biased or evil. And so I think that there's a connection between thinking that people are rational on the other side and thinking that they're evil and, and all the sort of things that go along with affective polarization. So the wow. basic hope for the sort of rational story is that it could sort of cool the temperature a little bit and get us to see Maybe we can think the other side is wrong and not think they are dumb, as I like to put it. Can I tell this story back to you just to make sure I've understood? Which is that we discover with Dan Kahneman and Amos Tversky and others that in fact the human animal is not rational in the ways that we'd previously assumed, at least not rational in straight lines. The idea, therefore, that the human being is irrational starts taking proper root across culture. Because we can't see ourselves as irrational, when we meet people with different opinions to us, we call them irrational. And that critique that you're an irrational human is one which is not just polarizing, it's demonizing. It makes them less than human. It makes them intellectually corrupt. That exactly. accelerates, puts fuel onto the fire of polarization and means that we actually can't engage with them. We stop thinking of them as we stop thinking of them as humans. We stop thinking of them as the right kind of partners for us in the democratic project, which is collaborative politics. Exactly. What your move does is to remind all of us that, in fact, even our cognitive processes that seem most motivated, that seem most biased, are also rational moves. And therefore, we cannot claim that the other side is irrational and therefore less than human. Exactly. Yes, I think that's the, that's the big picture project, at least. So, Kevin, it's taken you half an hour to walk me through the arguments for 
the rationality of bias. How do you take this out into the world? How do you help us understand that the other side is doing its best to? I have to end on the hardest question, right? The question that I am <laughs> pleased to say. But yeah, I think it's, that's the million dollar question, not one that I feel like I have a great answer to. But a few thoughts for, I think, relevant. One is, is simply that, like, I think it's good to recognize that sort of the main, one of the main, if not the main problem of polarization is this affective polarization, this demonization of the other side. And so that we're, we're doing no one a favor. And we're, we're part of the problem when we, when we face with people who disagree with them, disagree with us, we think of them um, as necessarily corrupt or immoral and want to shout them down. So I think you know, there's certainly something to be said for encouraging more engagement with ideas, thinking that the, even if you think the person is wrong, you needn't think they're dumb. I think that's at least supposed to be a partial palliative, although you know, not much. A second thing that I think it adds is that you know, it really reminds us that when we look for something to blame polarization on, we don't need to blame people. We can blame structures or we can blame you know, certain people without blaming everyone. So I think I'm, I'm very much the type of in this rational story, I very much want to make a hard distinction between sort of the average American, say, and political actors that are in power. So like Trump, McConnell, you know, Nancy Pelosi, and so I'm not saying that they're acting in good faith or they're acting rationally and so on, but, and, you know, we can certainly well blame them, but it doesn't mean we necessarily have to blame, you know, the average voting. The average voter. Democrat. Yeah, exactly. So just trying to, you know, cool the temperature on, on the demonization is one, sort of the story existing is one point. I think another thing that I, I quite like is, I think you mentioned Robert Talese's work earlier, th this idea that part of what drives certain forms of polarization is the fact that we sort of don't, is, is social sorting, that we don't interact as much with people from the other side in sort of non-political capacities. Democrats and Republicans are more friends with themselves and across party lines, and so we, there's less and less social interaction across party pollination and so on. And so we see, we don't really see them as human as much. We sort of just see them when their political views come in contact with ours and then we don't like it. And so one thing that police proposes that I, I'm quite sympathetic to is the idea that one way to lower the temperature is to try to resuscitate certain forms of civic engagement that have nothing to do with politics. Just, you know, the, the classic example is the bowling league, sort of the, there's this famous book, Bowling Alone by Feeding his first name, but Putnam is the last name, about the rise and fall of civic engagement in the 20th century U.S. and how sort of throughout the later 20th century, there was just this precipitous fall in sort of doing stuff together that was just regular social little leagues and bowling leagues and that sort of thing. And so insofar as we can do more of that, hard in a pandemic, of course, but insofar as we can do more of that, that's less political engagement, more just engaging with our fellow citizens and seeing them as, as reasonable people, then that's one way, I think, to try to combat. Those are three upbeat suggestions. We tend not to have, we tend not to finish these podcasts on, on, a, on a positive note. So I'm very pleased to be doing this with you. Um, Kevin, thank you so much for walking me through the rationality of bias. And I hope we see your future come to pass. Thanks so much. Great to be here. That was the Palia podcast from Palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. 
sign up to join the community and map what the world thinks.